Good morning, everyone. Thank you, David, for the good song leading. Appreciate what you do for us and for everybody else who's led us in worship this morning. Appreciate all of you for being here. I um, kind of sitting there this morning feeling a little bit overwhelmed, um, partly because of the weight of the message I have to share, but also because I'm blessed enough to get to share it. And so I'm just grateful um, that you have invited me to this opportunity to share with you something this exciting, the victory that we all have in the Lamb, and I can't wait to talk about it this morning. And so as we do that, I hope you will have your Bibles ready because I'm going to apologize up front for something that I'm going to do that I know isn't fair, which is I'm going to move rapidly through the book of Revelation. And I know some of you are thinking, why? I don't understand what's going on in Revelation. I want to let you know that my goal here is not so that you walk out and say, what a great job, preacher. I finally understand everything about the book of Revelation. I don't know if I'm even equipped to help you get there. My goal today is simply to illustrate one of the themes that we find reoccurring in the book of Revelation. And so before we even get into the text that we're going to be talking about this morning, I want to give you an invitation, which is to study with me. If today or any time I go through a lesson, you have questions about the text that we, we covered or the, the comments that I make or about anything that we're doing here together, I love nothing more than the opportunity to sit down with people who love Christ like I do, open the scripture, and talk about it together. And so if you ever want an opportunity like that, uh, please come and see me afterwards. I will make time to do that with you. Last week, we ended our lesson with this concluding idea or thought, which is this. Babylon, and remember what we talked about, Babylon, at the time when John writes the book of Revelation, Babylon didn't exist anymore. Babylon is representative of all those human empires and institutions that seek to coerce people through their own authority. At the time, Babylon was Rome for those early Christians. Whatever version of Babylon we happen to live under, Babylon's priority is always to take human lives captive through an exertion of force. But we contrast that with the Lion of Judah and the Lamb that was slain, the King that we call Jesus. The Lamb's priority is to take human hearts captive through an act of sacrificial love. We're going to build off of that idea this week and add to it this. Babylon's rulers, whatever king or emperor, whoever it was in charge of whatever version of Babylon was on the earth, Babylon's rulers are stained by the blood of those whom they've conquered and killed. This is how they get into those positions of authority, by shedding the blood of their enemies and those who stand opposed to them until there's nothing and no one left to oppose them, and they stand with their garments stained by the blood of those people that they've killed along the way. The lamb, again, in contrast to that, is stained by his own blood, which he willingly shed for the redemption of the world. So like I talked about last week, the Lamb is a different kind of king who has ushered in a different kind of kingdom. Let's talk about that more this week. And what I want to do this week, last week we talked about how the imagery John gives us, especially in chapter 5 of the book of Revelation, of the Lion of Judah and the Lamb that was slain, while they seem to be in contrast and in conflict with one another, would have made perfect sense to those early Christians because they were students of Scripture. And so for us today, likewise, if we understand Scripture, we understand what those images are telling us because those images come to us preloaded, as it were, with meaning. 
They already mean something the way that they've been embedded in God's story. And so when we find them in Revelation, they mean something to us. They make sense logically. What I want to do this morning is talk about not so much how to make logical sense out of these images, but I want to talk about how those early Christians would have connected emotionally with these images. Yes, they would have made sense to their brains, but how did they connect to their hearts? What would they have felt as they came face to face with this image of a lamb that was slain? And so let's try to unpack that together this morning. Revelation chapter 2. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we find Jesus giving messages to seven churches spread throughout Asia Minor. And when we get to chapter 2 and verses 12 through 13, we find a message he's given to the church in Pergamum. And this is what he says. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum writes, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. They are embedded in the camp of the enemy. This is where they found themselves, trying to be faithful as followers of the Lamb in the place where Satan's throne dwelled. Yet you hold fast to my name, he says, and you did not deny my faith even, this is what I want you to pay attention to, even in the day of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. You have been faithful to me in this hotbed of evil activity, even when your friend Antipas was put to death because of his faith. And this sets the tone for the entire message of the book of Revelation. And this is what I want to want you to see so clearly, is this is how they would have connected to this message emotionally. When we talk about the opposition that we face today, and we do, as faithful followers of Christ, face opposition in an increasingly secular and hostile world. We do face opposition. But these Christians face a different kind of opposition. I may get blowback because of the message I preach because people don't like it. And they might say mean things about me. But for these early Christians, they face the very real possibility of having to give their lives for their faith. And they had already seen this play out in them. One of their own, Anubis, a friend, a man that they would have worshipped with, a man that they would have known, a man that they would have called their own, was killed because of his faith. And the message of Revelation is to a group of Christians, a generation of Christ followers, to whom that was a reality. That was a possibility. Not that they would be mistreated, but that they would be put to death because of their faith in Christ. And so it's to that generation of Christians that this message comes through. Jesus sees what they are going through, and he understands what they're enduring. Turn over to Revelation chapter 7, if you would. Revelation chapter 7, starting in verse 9. Revelation 7 is famous for its picture of the 144,000, which some Christian groups have uh, a lot to say about. But that 144,000 turns into an even bigger number in the second half, of Revelation chapter 7, and it's this that I want to focus on. In Revelation 7, starting in verse 9, John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, 
with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Remember we talked about that last week, how in chapter 4, it's God on the throne and everyone worshiping Him. In chapter 5, the Lamb, the lamb comes out, stands by His side, and now they're worshiping not just God the Father, but the Lamb at His side. And that's continuing on here in chapter 7. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In verse 11, And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, this is John speaking, and he said, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Two major themes in the book of Revelation. Tribulation and bloodshed. These are the ones who have come out of that tribulation. Listen to what he says then. They have washed their robes and made them white. With what? With blood. That illustration doesn't even make any sense, does it? But this is the paradoxical, paradoxical nature of the sacrifice of Christ. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more. Neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb is in their midst. Of the throne he will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every, what? Tear from their eye. Right? This picture painted, yes, you are suffering now, but these are the ones who stand victorious on the other side of that suffering, having washed their robes white with the blood of the Lamb. And now they find themselves in the midst of the Lamb and the throne, and all of those things that they suffered are now things of the past. This is the vision that Revelation casts in front of those who are suffering at the moment for the sake of Christ. Then we turn over to chapter 13. If you turn over there with me. We're going to read verses 5 through 10. Revelation 13, verses 5 through 10. It says, And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life and of the Lamb who was slain. And if anyone has a, an ear to hear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain by the sword, with the sword he must be slain. This is what awaits those who are suffering. In a minute, we're going to get to a, a text where all those who have already been slain are standing before God and they're crying out with one voice, asking him a question, how long? This is the prevailing question of Revelation to a generation of Christians who are suffering and dying because of their faith. God, do you see us? Do you see what we're going through? And how long are you going to allow us to go through this before you do something about it? And the message from God here. The vision he puts before them here is, is one that I wouldn't be really excited to hear, which is, there's still suffering waiting for you. 
The suffering hasn't come to an end yet. If anyone is going to be taken captive to captivity, he must go. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. There is still persecution waiting for you. But listen to what he says then. Here is a call for what specifically? For the endurance and faith of the saints. I'm not going to lie to you. Persecution awaits you. But what I'm asking for from you is faith and endurance. Are you willing to endure what might be required of you because of your faith? And remember, none of this should come as a surprise. When Jesus was on earth with his disciples, what did he tell them bluntly and plainly? If they hate me, they're going to what? They're going to hate you. If they persecute me, they're going to do what? They're going to persecute you. But now these Christians are living in that reality. God sees what they're going through, but they have yet more to endure. Skip over to chapter 14, another call for endurance. In verses 12 through 13 of that chapter, here is, again, a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus, in spite of what awaits you, in spite of the opposition, the persecution, the imprisonments, and maybe even death, in spite of all of that, what I am calling you to, God says to his church, is endurance. And you think about what we endure today. Think about what we endure today. And I'm not diminishing whatever your sufferings are, but I'm reminded of something the Hebrew author said to the church that he's addressing in the book of Hebrews. He said, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. It can get harder. And it may indeed get harder. What God is asking us for is endurance. He's calling us to faith in him. And the vision he sets before us in Revelation is meant to give us that endurance and to bolster that faith. Well, how? Well, let's continue. Chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. Revelation 17, verses 1 through 6. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Here we've got another image that's given many times throughout Revelation, of a great prostitute, also referring to Babylon, or all of those human institutions that are like Babylon. She is the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of those whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Now, I just want you to think about the imagery. And what it's conjuring up in your mind. Remember last week I talked about the imagery in Revelation is graphic on purpose. John wants you to use your imagination. And so use your imagination here as you picture this. I see a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet. And adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. Holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. You think of all of that imagery, the scarlet, the robes, the jewels, all of this, it's painting a picture of what? Royalty. Those people on earth who are in positions of authority, 
For them, it was the Roman emperors, but it's just Babylon all over again. Another version of Babylon followed by another version of Babylon. Humans who would coerce other humans into bowing down before them so that they can gain power and authority. And behind the scenes, Satan is animating all of that. Spiritual forces of evil are at work giving power to the Babylons of the earth. And John is painting this picture of this great prostitute. And listen to what he says in verse 6. He says, And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mysteries of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns. That carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. The whole picture painted for us here is one of Babylon awaiting judgment. But the picture that John uses for them to come to terms with who Babylon is is this woman adorned in all of these pictures of splendid royalty and power, drunk on the blood of the saints. This is what Babylon does. It consumes those who belong to God. It oppresses those who have faith in Christ. It bleeds out the saints. And so she's drunk on the blood of the saints. It's graphic, disgusting imagery, but that's the purpose of it. And then we find the imagery carried even further in the next chapter. In chapter 18, we are given details of the final fall of Babylon. What is it going to look like when finally Babylon is destroyed? And among other things, we find this in verses 21 through 24. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of the harpists and musicians of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. All those things that you would be used to hearing and seeing in a bustling metropolis, they're going to cease to exist because Babylon is going to be destroyed. And then he says, For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. And all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. You go back to that last image of this woman drunk with the blood of the saints. And now as she's slain, what do you find inside of her? All that blood. You've got to get drunk on blood. You have to consume it, right? It's terrible, disgusting imagery, but that is the purpose. To see the corruption of Babylon laid bare and to know that God is holding Babylon in judgment. And he's watching these Christians suffer at Babylon's hand, but God has something in store for Babylon. And he wants them to know that. So suffer for a little while longer because Babylon does not win this war. I will. And then we get to this. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. Revelation 19, 11 through 16, and something surprising happens here. And I'll be honest with you, this is a passage that has given me difficulty throughout the years, one that I'm still wrestling with. Um, but I want to share with you what I think about this passage. Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. You guys 
of all the images in Revelation, this is one you might be familiar with. Behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is what? The Word of God. Okay, who is this that's being described here? It's very clearly Jesus. All of the images John has used previously in Revelation are brought together here, and it's very clearly Jesus. And we see him again, like we did in chapter 5. He appears as a lamb that was slain, a lamb covered in its own blood. Here again, Jesus appears drenched in blood. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. In the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Remember, you go back to chapter 1, that's how Jesus is first introduced to us as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we talked about this last week, the Lion of Judah, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but also the Lamb that was slain. And which one is he? Is he a mighty conquering king? Or is he this ultimate symbol of self-sacrifice? And the message clearly from John and Revelation is that he's both. And that's exactly what he's illustrating to us here. I have one question when I read this, and it's this. In this scenario, in this scene, in this picture, as Jesus appears with his robe drenched in blood, whose blood is it? Because back in chapter 5, the lamb that was slain, it's covered in what? His own blood, right? And so I'm tempted to just say, well, this is just another picture of that sacrificial lamb. This is Jesus again drenched in his own blood, but I run into a problem when I try to interpret it that way. And the problem is that John is clearly borrowing, again, from another place in Scripture. And that's Isaiah chapter 63. So turn over there with me if you would. This is where John gets this image. And I want you to think about this image, now applied to Jesus, the rider on the white horse, the victorious conquering king. In Isaiah chapter 63, God is painting a picture of his wrath and his judgment being unleashed on the earth. Isaiah 63 verse 1, who is this who comes from Eden in crimsoned garments from Basra? Who is this that showed up with red clothing? Who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength? And then God says, it is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red, God? And your garments like his who treads in the wine press. Remember, how did they make wine at the time? They would step on it, right? And if you're the one in the wine press treading on the grapes, what's going to happen to your clothes? They're going to turn red from the grape juice. But this isn't an image of God getting some grape juice spilled on him. This is something much more graphic. Why is your apparel red like you've been treading the wine? I have trodden the winepress alone, God says, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained my apparel. It's not grape juice that's staining his garments red, but what? The blood of those who have suffered at the hand of his justice and wrath. 
For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. This is the place that John is borrowing from to describe what Jesus looks like as he brings to earth the ultimate judgment on Babylon. And here in this scene, it's not just his own blood that have stained his garments red, but if you're going to read it through the lens of Isaiah 63, then it's the blood of those to whom have suffered at the hands of his wrath. And so what do we do with that? Who is Jesus? Is he this suffering innocent lamb who has sacrificed his own blood? Yes. Is he the ultimate symbol of God's victory over all the evil forces at work on earth. Yes, he's both at the same time. He is both the lamb covered in his own blood and the conquering king covered in the blood of his enemies. He is both of those at the same time. And what I want you to understand is as those early Christians suffering at the hands of unrighteous Rome or Babylon were crying out to God, how long? And wondering what he had in store for them, I want you to see how they would have connected with this image of a blood-soaked Jesus emotionally. Why was the image of a blood-soaked Savior so relevant to those early Christians? Because in that image, they are reminded of two things. Number one, Jesus suffered like they were suffering. Go back to Isaiah 53 that Glenn read for us around the Lord's table this morning. Like a lamb led to slaughter, right? Why did he do that? For our sake. He becomes the atoning sacrifice. There is a great reminder in this image of a blood-soaked Savior for those early suffering Christians that I'm not suffering unlike my Lord. I'm suffering just like my Lord. He knows what I am enduring. He sees what I am enduring. He recognizes my suffering. And there is value to it in his eyes. But also... That he's not just sitting back uninterested watching me suffer. He's not just watching the faithful disciples like Antipas shed their blood on his behalf and saying, oh, what a pity. He's got something in store for those who have caused that suffering. And God's wrath will be brought to earth in a final act of judgment when Babylon is brought to nothing. When the beast is brought to nothing, when the powers of Satan that are at work on this earth are brought to nothing, all of that will be vindicated. But that's up to God. Here's a question they may have asked themselves. As they look around and they, they think, what am I really doing here? Is it worth the sacrifice that I'm being asked to make? Have I pledged my allegiance to the right kingdom? Because it looks like, from my perspective, God, Babylon is winning. So should I be on Babylon's side or should I be on the side of the Lamb? Have I pledged my allegiance to the right kingdom? And I was promised victory, but all I see is death. So what do I do with that, Jesus? Help me understand this. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Revelation 6, verses 9 through 11, we read this. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. 
You can understand the struggle of a first century Christian thinking, hold on a second, if he is king of kings and lord of lords, why are you asking me to just suffer a little while longer? Why don't you come now and put an end to all of these things? I can certainly relate to that question. And then we get to Revelation 12, starting in verse 7, if you want to turn over there. Revelation 12, starting in verse 7, the passage that was read for us before the lesson this morning. Revelation 12, starting in verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. But he was defeated. There's a spiritual war taking place, but he was defeated. So why are we still engaged in this war if Satan has already been defeated? There was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers. That Satan has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto what? Death. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. We read that through our lens today, and we think, well, be faithful until you live a very long and prosperous life and die happy at a ripe old age. And that might be what God has in mind for you. I don't know. But these early Christians read this, and that's not what they were thinking. They weren't thinking about prosperity in the future. They were thinking, if my faith requires my life of me, I will receive the crown of life. The message of Revelation is a message of victory granted to a persecuted people, and that's who John is addressing here. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Why? Because he knows his time is short. He knows he's lost the battle. And so like a wild animal backed into a corner, what is he doing now? Fighting with every bit of strength he has left. And we are enduring his wrath right now. But the victory has been secured. And so we can live as a persecuted people. We can live in the face of opposition with hope. Because that victory has been promised to us. This is how they would have connected to this message emotionally. As they're watching their friends go to their death because of their faith, they are able to endure because they have a hope that they will be victorious. And indeed, they already are. Are we victims or are we victorious? And I think the answer that Revelation gives is we're both. We are victims. Whenever we suffer at the hands of unrighteous people because of our faith, we are victims. And God recognizes that. He sees that and he values it. But even while we are enduring, we are victorious. Because that final victory has been promised to us. God took what was seen by the world as an absolute sign of defeat. What am I talking about? What is the absolute sign of defeat? If you want to defeat your enemies, what do you do to them? You do what? You kill them. Those who were opposed to Jesus on the earth did what? They arrested him, they humiliated him, they beat him. 
They put him on false trial, and then they did what? They hung him on a cross, and they killed him. So they won, right? They defeated Jesus by putting him to death, right? Well, no, that's not the story Scripture tells, is it? That in that dying, in that act of self-sacrifice, Jesus actually secured victory over his enemies. This is, again, the paradox of seeing the world through God's eyes. God took what was seen by the world as an absolute sign of defeat and turned it into the ultimate sign of victory. So the scandal that is the cross becomes for Christians the ultimate sign of victory. The lamb that was slain. The Savior, bloodied and bruised and beaten and humiliated, nailed to a cross, becomes for us the ultimate sign of victory. That is so, so backwards from the way that humans tend to process the world around them. And that's the kind of kingdom we've been called to, a backwards, upside-down, inside-out kind of kingdom so that Jesus asks from us radical things, like in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, where he tells us that we should love even our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Why would we do that? Because those are the weapons the Lamb has given us to engage in a hostile world. We want to be like Peter in the garden. When they came to arrest Jesus, he did what? Grabbed his sword and cut off the guy's ear, right? We're going to defend our Savior with the sword, and instead what he asked from us is to join us in his suffering and humility. Because in those things, we join him in his victory. So backwards. But this is where the power of the gospel lies. And we forget this too easily. What does the image of the lamb that was slain tell us about Jesus? Again, Jesus was a different kind of king ruling over a different kind of kingdom. And in him, we find this, that the conquering lion is indeed a sacrificial lamb. This is what victory looks like through the eyes of our God. And bear with me just a couple more minutes. Then comes the end, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in verse 20. Turn over there if you would to 1 Corinthians 15. Then comes the end. Listen to what Paul says. But in fact, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead. There were Christians in Corinth trying to convince other Christians that Jesus had not actually been raised from the dead. And Paul said, that's ridiculous. That's the heart of the gospel. He has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes what? The end. And the reason I point your attention to this is because for many people, you think of the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, it's an apocalypse after all. It's all about what? The end, right? And for a lot of people, Revelation is a secret, mysterious, godly calendar. And if you just read it the right way and uncover its secrets, you can figure out when he's coming, and you can read the signs of the times and predict when he's going to return. Lots of false teachers out there have manipulated a lot of well-meaning people by convincing them that they can do that exact thing. Revelation is concerned with the end. Revelation casts a vision of the end, but its concern is not with when the end comes, but what happens when the end comes. The vision cast in Revelation is one of an end that belongs entirely to the Lamb. And the vision that Revelation casts for us is that when the end comes, our hope does not lie in our ability to build a better Babylon. 
through our own ingenuity, if we just work hard at it enough, we can just reform Babylon from within and make it better and good and glorious. That's not the vision cast in Revelation. The vision cast in Revelation is that when Christ comes, all versions of Babylon are destroyed. Our hope does not lie in a new Babylon. Our hope lies in a new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven to earth where the Lamb reigns supreme forever. That's where our hope lies. Paul is talking about this. Then comes the end, he says. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Christ is going to reign until he destroys every enemy. And the last enemy to be destroyed is what? Death itself. Death itself, which is why Paul goes on to say this. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is law. But thanks be to God who gives us what? The victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So even when we are victims, we are victorious people. We are God's victorious people. We are the Lamb's victorious people. It is time for us to live as victorious people. Let's stop clenching our hands, fretting over the opposition that we face in the world, and live as if we have already grabbed hold of the victory promised to us. Because, friends, we have. We have. And I hope I can convince you of that because that's what John is trying to do in the book of Revelation. Listen to this, Peter in 2 Peter 3. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, he's talking about what happens at the end. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. We're about to celebrate Christmas, the birth of our Savior. And if you go back in time 2,000 years... This is what Israel was doing. They were in a period of waiting. They were waiting for the king to come. They were waiting for God's anointed one to show up as he had promised them and to redeem them. They were waiting for that to happen. Today we know who that king is. We boldly proclaim his name is Jesus. We know who that king is. We teach the world that the king has come, but we are still in a period of waiting today, aren't we? Because what are we waiting for? The return of that king. That's what we're waiting for now. So Peter talks about us being a people who are waiting, but not just waiting idly, hastening the coming of the day of God. We are looking forward to it anxiously. We are anticipating His return. The coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. The heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, but according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We are waiting for the king to come back and bring the new Jerusalem with him. Listen, I stand in front of you today, a person who lives in awe of that lamb that was slain. I'm in awe. I proclaim him to you as the king that the world has been waiting for. And I'm telling you now that he's coming back to redeem us to take us home, to bring with Him righteousness on earth, but also to set at right all of those things 
that have gone so horribly wrong in God's perfect creation. And as you suffer today, whatever it is you're suffering through, your God sees you. Your Savior has suffered alongside with you and has suffered for you. He knows what you're going through. And He has made you a promise that He is coming back to get you and to take you home. And that when He does, every tear will be wiped from your eyes. Because all those things that you're suffering now will be done away forever. And so as I stand before you in awe of Jesus, I would like to ask you to stand with me. The end of Revelation, it ends this way. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. To which John responds, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I'm asking you to stand with me today with those same words on our lips. Come, Lord Jesus, come and take us home. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all of you. Amen. Would you stand and sing with me this last song? Oh